You're listening to TIP. In today's classic episode, Preston and I are speaking to William Green. We originally interviewed William back in May 2015 as episode 38, and looking back, this episode stood out to us as something very special. It wasn't only because of the book we discussed, The Great Minds of Investing. The book is outstanding, but William stood out. And he did it in such a special way that when we in 2021 were looking for a new co-host for The Investor's Podcast, we couldn't help but think of William. In this interview, William is very thoughtful. And you can tell how he long ago realized that investing is about so much more than the money. It's about living the best possible life. So without further ado, let's jump to it. We study billionaires and this is episode 38 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host Stig Broderson out in Denmark. And today we have a really fun guest for you. Uh, his name is William Green. And uh, Williams, he's got an education from Oxford, uh, which Guy Spear, who we had on our show earlier, also had his uh, education from Oxford. So I got a question for William after this introduction. But uh, he also studied uh, journalism at Columbia University in New York. He's a writer. And I'll tell you, he has written for some top tier uh, companies like Time, Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, The New Yorker, uh, The Economist. And he specializes in uh, investing, and he just came out with a brand new book. The name of the book is The Great Minds of Investing, and it has a profile of all the top investors in the entire world. Uh, and he sent us a copy of this book, and let me tell you, this is a beautiful book. I think some might actually qualify it as being a sexy book. And for investing, that's a real accomplishment, uh, William, because not too many people can make an investing book look sexy. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, my question for you is, did you know Guy from Oxford or did you meet Guy afterwards? It's a good question. Hi, first, thanks so much for having me on. I'm just thrilled to be here with you. Uh, Guy, I, I did know at Oxford, but very, very vaguely. I, and I actually realized only many years later in a sort of flashback, about 15 years later, I remembered him as this sort of dashing looking young bloke with a, with a sort of red scarf, who I think I, I resented because he was much better looking than me. Um, and then I became friends with him when, um, when we were both in New York, we, we had both left, uh, left London and, and moved to New York and, and we kind of randomly met and we became friends. And I, what I didn't realize um, until many years later that is that I was actually one of the first investors in his fund, which I, I you know, I, I'm not sure I did it through tremendous due diligence or intelligence. I, I think I sort of intuitively thought he was really smart. And, and I, I think sometimes in investing, we're kind of uh, we, we just get lucky. And I, 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 I've been an investor with Guy probably for 15 years since then. And we've become close friends and, and collaborators on his book. Yeah. So for people that are joining us and maybe didn't listen to uh, one of the earlier episodes, we interviewed Guy Spear. He's the hedge fund manager for the Aquamarine Fund. 
Um, he, um, him and Manish Pabrai, who we're actually going to talk about in this interview, are very close friends. And Guy just gave us one of the best interviews. If you haven't listened to our interview with Guy Spear, you need to definitely go back and listen to that. But uh, Guy told us about William and, and this book that he's been writing. So we've been anticipating this book since around Christmas. We've been really excited to get our hands on it. And then whenever I saw it, I was like, wow, this thing's crazy. Like, it is an awesome book. Um, but anyway, we had a surprise for you lined up today, William. Um, Guy was going to dial into this call and just congratulate you and just tell you, you know, congrats on the book. But um, he got caught up in Houston with the storm that they have down there. He was actually traveling on his way to Boston and he got stuck in Houston and he's actually on a flight right now. So he wasn't able to dial in for the interview, but uh, he was totally uh, planning on making it. He's here in spirit. Guy has been a tremendous support to me in many ways. And one of of the things that's fascinating about Guy that I learned by spending a lot of time with him, because, you know, you know, I virtually lived with him and his family in Zurich for a while while we were working on his book, The Education of of a Value Investor. And one of the things I learned from Guy is this idea that he and a friend of his, Ken Schubenstein, who's a professor at Columbia Business School, had discussed, which is this idea of compounding goodwill. And Guy really lives this way, like yeah. this idea that you're constantly doing things to help people. And so I, I, I think it's a really fascinating twist on the whole idea of compounding money. You, you know, it's a, sort of, it's a sort of more profound version of it. Um, so uh, so he, he's, he's well worth studying, I think. Like most of these investors, he's worth studying as an investor, but also as a, as a human being, because you, you learn stuff about how to live from the, the best investors. That's that's the thing Stig and I can definitely say is that once we met Guy, he is such a giving person. Like he would not stop. Like it was just like, oh, here's another person that can help you out. And it's like, Guy, like, how can I possibly repay you at this point? And he wants nothing in return. That's the thing that's just so amazing. But anyway, let's start talking about your book here. So, William, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you found yourself as a writer um, really coming into this realm of investment, how did you get attracted to the to the writing of in, investors? It, it's a slightly un, unlikely and unexpected story, even for me, because I I grew up in England, and as as you say, I went to Oxford. I studied English literature at Oxford, and I I moved to New York when I was about twenty one, and thought that I would be a you know a great novelist or storyteller, and would write you know beautiful long pieces for the New Yorker, and and would be a sort of artist. And I would get the um, the business section of the Sunday New York Times on Sunday, and I literally would just toss it out. I I, uh, I would turn to the book review, um, which was really interesting to me. And 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 I just I regarded business and investing and money as kind of crass and vulgar. And I thought, you know, these people who just devote their lives to making money are kind of superficial, and and they live meaningless lives. And and then in my early twenties. I started to invest. Um, I, I had sold a small apartment that my brother and I had owned in London. And so I had a little bit of money, not a huge amount, but I started to invest. And, and I started to really study investing. I would, I would read endlessly about mutual funds and the like. And it reminded me somewhat of what had happened to me when I was a kid, when I was a, about 15 at boarding school. I went to Eton, which is this sort of very posh, slightly oppressive English boarding school. And I... I had sort of secretly discovered um, horse racing and, and gambling on horses. And I, I set up a betting account at a, at a local turf accountant, as they're called in England, in, in Windsor. And I used to sort of sneak out when everyone else was rowing or playing cricket. And I would go to this betting shop and I would bet on the horses. And initially I made money and I thought, wow, this is fantastic because I'm never going to have to work. 
And then I discovered that actually I lost and I immediately stopped <laughs> betting on horses because I, I wasn't interested in it for the, for the thrill. I wanted to make money by, yeah. by playing this game. And in a way, when I, when I was in my early 20s and I discovered investing, it had a, the same kind of thrill and fascination to me. It was this game. And you thought, well, so if I can be smart and use my brain in an intelligent, thoughtful way, I can actually make money without really doing that much hard work, which I think is what people like Bill Nygren and, and John Spears, who we feature in the book, also discovered. They were kind of, um, you know, it was almost an excuse not to have to do things like mowing lawns for $6 an hour. Well, it's a, it's a function of probability. I mean, that's what people don't realize is as you go to the track, it's a probability game, like the, your odds of winning. And when you invest in a company, something, some catastrophic event could happen tomorrow to that business and it could go, you know, completely bankrupt. And that's a probability. It's a real small probability. It's very small compared to like your track racing, but it's still a probability. And I think a lot of people need to respect the fact that there's definitely a uh, there's an odds to it, no matter how you shake it. I, I don't care what anyone says. There's definitely an odds. Yeah, it's a, and, and it's and it's a game at some level. And I think the best investors often are people who don't have any emotion involved in the game. They they truly see it as a game. And and so then part of what happened to me was that I I started I started to write about investors for various publications. So for example, I profiled Bill Miller for Fortune. Um, I went to the Palmers and interviewed Sir John Templeton for Money Magazine. I would write about um, Marty Whitman and his attempt to find a, a kind of apprentice who could who could match his greatness. I, I wrote that for Forbes. I, I interviewed Bill Ruane, who was the guy who um, Buffett had, when Buffett closed his limited partnerships in in the sixties. He said to his shareholders, "You know, you should invest with this friend of mine, Bill Ruane." And over the next whatever, 30 years, Ruin beat the market by something like four and a half thousand percentage points at the Sequoia Fund. So I interviewed this series of incredible investors and I became kind of fascinated by this question of, of, of what made them special, what they had in common, why this tiny percentage of great investors was able to kind of defy gravity, if you like, and, and beat the market. And, and so that became kind of this abiding intellectual passion of mine. But then I would say in the last few years, my interest in investing has kind of deepened as I've got older. I'm in my mid 40s now and you become maybe hopefully a little bit more soulful as you as you reach middle age. And and I I started to be interested in these guys, not just as a way of, of thinking, you know, how do I get rich and be as lazy as possible? I started to think that these guys like Buffett and Munger or Monish Pabri or John Spears or whoever you want to talk about, any of these great investors, they, they're repositories of tremendous practical wisdom. You know, they figured out certain things about what works in life and what doesn't work in life. And, you know, they're not flawless. There are plenty of them who've, you know, had terrible marriages and legal problems or whatever, you know, I mean, like all of us, they're human. But I think they've figured out a great deal about how to live successful lives. And so I, I think part of what this book is about is, yeah, how do you, how do you get rich? How do you figure out, uh, you know, ways to get rich? But part of it is much deeper than that. And I, I, I come back and again, again and again in the interviews to questions about things like, you know, what's made you happiest? What's given you a sense of fulfillment? What, what disappoints you? What, when you look back, what do you regret in the course of your life? Um, where do you get your strength in moments where, you know, you're going through the ringer and, and, and life is not working out for you? And, and so I sort of, 
I, I, I guess I look at investing in a slightly different way to most people. I'm fascinated in it as a financial game, but I'm also fascinated in it as a kind of microcosm that teaches you about um, how to live. If you study and reverse engineer these very brilliant, very successful people's lives. Yeah. I, I also fascinate William about how to make the returns yourself. Like a lot of people would look at someone like Warren Buffett and say, I want to replicate what he's doing. I want to, to, to make these returns myself or I use a person do a thing. He is probably better than I it will be. I will just invest in, in, in Berkshire Hathaway and then, you know, to sit back, relax and enjoy my family and my life. One of the things that struck me about Buffett, it's interesting that you, you immediately bring up Buffett as we talk about the greatest investors. The thing that really struck me sort of surprisingly was I, I had always thought Ben Graham was kind of the most important investing mind of the last century. And, and actually what you start to see is Buffett is kind of the most important investing mind, but he, he just has this extraordinary influence. And again and again, I would talk to these great investors and they would sort of talk about discovering Graham and they would talk about Buffett. And, and so it, it, it was kind of fascinating to me that actually it, it may be that the, the greatest influence in the world of investing truly is Buffett at this point and not Graham, who was his master. You know, it's it's. I had the same opinion. So whenever I started reading and studying Buffett, I immediately went to Graham because I knew that that's was his source of or his foundation of investing. But then the thing that I really had an appreciation for Buffett was the fact that he took Graham's uh, basically like cigar butt approach, but he really morphed it using Charlie Munger. I, I know a lot of people know this story, but his ability to basically take that and really kind of change it in a different direction where he was going after great business as opposed to ones that were kind of dying, I think was what really set him strategically apart from Graham and why so many people got such an attraction to Buffett because he kind of took it from a dark, negative way of investing to this really bright and luminous way of investing that had a profound impact on society. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people make that change and transition. Would you, would you agree with that, William? It's a very interesting point. I, I, I think it's, I, I think you're right, but I think it's probably slightly unfair to Ben Graham. I, I, I think, I think Graham came up with a couple of very, very profound insights that, that are still as, um, and, and that even that is under, is underplaying it very significantly. Uh, you know, these ideas like the margin of safety that he came up with, it's an incredibly profound concept, if you think, that, that applies not just to investing, but to everything in your life. You know, the, the, this idea that the, the future is tremendously uncertain. And so you need to build in some kind of margin of safety. And, I, you know, I was telling someone recently that as, as I've been teaching my son to drive, if you can call me a teacher of driving, since I'm not great myself, I, I have a 17 year old son. And I keep saying to him, you know, remember Buffett, remember Buffett. You need to check in, the, in, in, in your mirror. You can't, you know, and then you need to look around. You can't just change lane. You know, you've got to, you, you, you've got to have this margin of safety. And I, I've really internalized that idea from Graham. So I, I, I think there are many very profound ideas from Graham. You know, the idea that you don't really want to be yanked around by the market, that the market serves you, that, that, that it's, it's not your master, it's your servant. And so I, I think there are very profound things that come from Graham. But then, you know, Joe Greenblatt made a very similar point to me that you made about Buffett, about how Buffett, Buffett kind of added this one twist to Graham, which is cheap companies are great, but if you can find cheap, good companies, that's even better. And, and, and Joe Greenblatt said to me, you know, that one twist made, made Buffett the richest or one of the richest men in the world. 
And and Joel was saying that, you know, when Joel went to Wharton, right, and he he had these professors who kept saying to him, you know, the markets are efficient, and just viscerally he didn't believe it. <laughs> and then um, he 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 discovered Graham, like many of these investors in this book, you know, it was almost a, a religious epiphany. You know, he discovers Graham, and it changes his mind about everything. And he and he suddenly has this framework of what he described as a sort of very simple framework to see the world. And then he adds a few years later what Buffett taught him. And so he said those, those two principles, you know, by marrying Graham and Buffett, really that, that's how he ended up making, you know, 50% a year returns in his first decade as a hedge fund manager. Yeah. Yeah. And, and William, I'm actually curious about your own experience because you said uh, like several times that a lot of the people that were really influenced by Warren Buffett and it was almost like a religious experience that you would have someone like David Winter in the book who is a fantastic investment himself said that it's like religion. Either you believe in it or you don't believe in it. And you, you have people saying, I found the intelligent investor like, you know, <laughs> like reasonable, yeah. right? So what was what your own personal experience with value investing? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it it really is almost like a like a like a religious thing. And and Buffett has always said either you get it or you don't, you know. And if you don't get it, you're kind of never going to get it. And so for me, when I started to invest in my early twenties, you know, I would see, I, I would read these things that would say, you know, you want to have half your money in growth funds and half in value funds. And and for a couple of years, I kind of did that. And in the end, I. I, I got to a point where I just had nothing that wasn't value. I, I mean, I, for the last 20 years, I've only invested in value stuff. And it just, it just makes intuitive sense to me. I, I, I think I'm, I mean, I have not, not, none of the investing greatness of the people in this book, but, but like them, I'm naturally contrarian. I like to go against the crowd. I don't necessarily think the herd is, is uh, you know, has this tremendous wisdom. I understand that indexing is an incredibly powerful thing and that, you know, it might even be that I'd be much smarter just to index. But intuitively, the idea of going against the crowd, being contrarian, buying stuff that's cheap is very, very appealing to me. I think one, one of the things that's interesting to me is that when, when you look at all the people in this book and at most of the great, great value investors, they're, they're kind of iconoclasts. They're, the, they're these mavericks and eccentrics who temperamentally go against the crowd. They question everything. Um, they're kind of deeper thinkers. And I, I, I think, but I think by nature, I grew up as somebody who, who questioned everything. And even if, you know, if you think about the fact that, you know, as a 15 year old, I was sneaking out to gamble on the horses rather than, you know, going, going to play cricket or rowing in England, you know, I was trying to figure stuff out and it may have been kind of roguish, but it was, it was me trying at a very early age to think, so, so how do you beat the system? Uh, you know, by using your intelligence. And, and when I look at someone like Joel Greenblatt or Monish Pabri, these are guys who, who, who are kind of masters of beating the system through, through using their intelligence. And it may be that for, for almost all investors, it's not a smart thing to do, that you're much better off indexing. But I do think there's this, there's this tiny group of investors who who kind of show us the way, who show us that if you're really smart and you get your emotions under control, you can, you can win the game. And that's, that's what fascinates me. And maybe, you know, maybe it's kind of a, mir a mirage, you know, <laughs> you know, that I, I keep chasing after um, this, the, you know, this possibility that I'm going to be that tiny percentage that beats the market. But, you know, uh, over the years I invested with, with Guy, obviously, who's done very well, who's beaten the market by, 
hundreds of percentage points over the year over the years. This is Guy Spear. I invested I, for a long time. I, I invested with Marty Whitman. I had a separate account with Marty, and you know, I, I did it right after the um, the tech bubble burst, and and everyone was sort of miserable about stocks. And I set up this this account with Marty because you know he was a he was a great bottom feeder. He was a great a, a great guy at buying busted tech stocks and other things like that. And then. Uh, and, and the other guy I invested with, who I'm still invested with, is a, is a very brilliant guy who I was introduced to by Bruce Greenwald, the famous professor of value investing at Columbia. And that's, that's a hedge fund manager in Boston, a guy called Andrew Weiss, who, um, who hasn't had a, a losing year in 24 years with his hedge fund. <laughs> and and that, that to me, you know, he kind of saved me during the financial crisis because Guy had a terrible time and, 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 you know, really had a bad year, like many of many of the sort of fairly concentrated value investors yeah. and Weiss made 1%. And so, you know, th- this is why I sort of still cling to this idea that, that even though there's a hell of a lot of logic to investing in an index fund, actually you get tremendous, tremendous benefit, you know, by being a, a long-term contrarian value investor, if you have the temperament for it. And I think we've got to give respect to all these guys in your book and all these people that, that you're talking about, William, these guys are very smart. They have dedicated their life to understanding like fundamental aspects like accounting and just this hardcore, like they are digging in this stuff for hours every day. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily have that respect for, for the people they're going against. If they really are trying to beat the market. If you're a person who's just like trying to do it uh, like one day out of the week or whatever, and you're just really kind of not into it, I mean, really into it. I'd, I would argue you really do need to stick with an index. Would you uh, agree with that based on all the I, interviews I you've had? A, I think it's a very important point. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, you know, early early in my career as a finance writer, I, I went to the Bahamas, as I was mentioning, to meet Sir John Templeton. And I, you know, I was asking him for advice myself. And, and, and he said to me, you know, you have no business buying individual stocks unless you're a professional, basically. He said, it's such hard work. You know, you need to be tremendously diligent. And, and he said he didn't buy individual stocks anymore at that point. I guess he was in his 80s at that point. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people would disagree with this and would say, no, no, I do fantastically by doing individual stocks. But, you know, Jean-Marie Eviard said to me he doesn't really manage his own portfolio anymore because he doesn't have a team of analysts who he can send out to do to do the research since he's now in his mid seventies, I guess. And he's, he's more sort of emeritus figure at his, at his fund business. Um, Bill Nygren said to me that, um, uh, he said, there are plenty of great investors who, who, who kind of try to go half time later in life. And he said, it's always a disaster. He said, he said, (laughs) the investment business is so difficult that either, either the throttle is fully on or it's fully off. And so, I, you know, I, I think you do have to be very intensely involved to do well. But, but that said, I think, I think there are certain advantages that an individual investor might have, because if you think about it, the pressure that these guys are under, the professionals to perform every quarter, you know, there's tremendous institutional pressure from their bosses saying, you know, look, you've underperformed now for three years running. And how come you don't get this new paradigm of investing in Internet stocks, which is what happened to Evayard? Um, Don Yachtman had the same where his own board tried to fire him. And they said, you know, you're, you're no longer investing in accordance with the principles of your own fund. 
And, and so Yachtman at the time had probably 10% of his fund in Philip Morris. This is in the late 90s, at a time when I think it was trading at a PE of six and had dividend yield of about six. And, you know, he's getting fired virtually and, and managed to survive this war with his directors. Your shareholders bail out at the worst possible time. So if you're an individual investor and you have the right temperament, you do have an advantage in that, in that you can stick with it, but, but you need an extraordinary temperament to do it. You know, so all these guys are handicapped by the short term interest of the people that are giving them money. You know, you look at Guy and you look at uh, he's got he's got a community of people that trust him and are are value investors and understand that it takes time and you might not have results right away. But I think for a lot of these other hedge fund managers, especially the ones that, you know, that you have in the you display in the book, these guys are totally handicapped by the people that are invested with them with their short term interest. Right. And, and this is part of the genius of Buffett, right? Is yeah. that Buffett realized that by, by having a, a corporation that, uh, that, that he had captive capital, that you, you know, he wouldn't be subject to people panicking and bailing out. And so I guess that's, that's my question. Why do you think more of these guys don't adopt that model? Now, I know Monish Pabrai is going to be doing that this year where he's starting his own corporation, but why are these other guys not doing that? I don't understand it. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about Monish is, is that he, he says often, often in life you have the, the best ideas are all out there and yet nobody does it. And, and he said when he started off investing, he, um, he, studied, he studied Buffett obsessively. You know, Monish has this sort of obsessive brilliance to him where he, he just sort of he, he studies something and, and kind of takes it apart, dissects it and understands it perfectly and then mimics it. And he said he looked around at, at the mutual fund world and he said it was just staggering that all of these guys could see how someone like Buffett had done extraordinarily well, uh, not least by having a very focused portfolio. And they would own hundreds of stocks and they would own hundreds of stocks that were overvalued. And so he said, th- th- he, he said you looked at this and you just knew that they were toast. And so I, I, I think it's a really fascinating idea that you can, the fundamental ideas about how to get rich in investing are not that elusive. I mean, we kind of understand that, you, you know, yeah, there are a lot of different ways to skin the cat. You can get rich a lot of different ways, but there are basic tenets of investing that we kind of know work. And yet people continue to, to panic, to bail out at the worst time, to, uh, to buy high and sell low. And so I, I, I think what I, came to, what I came to realize is, is that the challenge is as much temperamental as it is intellectual, that you can, you know, this is one of the things that Bill Miller said to me is that dur- during the financial crisis, he discovered that all of his analysts who claimed to be um, contrarian value investors were not value investors at all. They were value investors so long as it worked. And in, and in the moment when it ceased to work and really ceased to work, when you were getting killed, they suddenly just didn't have the temperament for it. And so I think it requires, it, you know, to do the right thing, to, to, to apply investing principles that, that work, not only not only requires a kind of intellectual understanding, but actually a a sort of wiring to be able to do it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. 
Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Coriant.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I think uh, the thing that Monish and Warren both share is the fact that they look at things through the lens of I'm an investor and I'm also a business owner and they have that business sense. And, and whenever I think you mesh those two together, you get such a better outcome uh, and I think that's one of the brilliance with uh, Buffett and uh, Monish. But I want to ex- explain something to the audience just so that they understand it in case they didn't understand what we were talking about there. So when we were saying that Warren Buffett, what he's done is he's basically flipped the hedge fund uh, model on its head. So whenever a business becomes overvalued in the, in the hedge fund realm, that's when everyone is giving you their money. And that's when you don't want it because you can't employ it properly. And then whenever the market crashes, everyone wants to take their money away from you. And that's whenever you need it because you're able to buy stocks at really cheap prices. So it's very hard for a hedge fund manager to be successful because they're getting the capital at the wrong times. And so what Buffett did is he flipped that model on its head and he incorporated a business, which he bought Berkshire Hathaway. And that's a whole other story. But under Berkshire Hathaway is where he's making all of his stock picks. So now if you have a person that wants to sell their stock in Berkshire Hathaway, guess who can buy it back at a cheaper price? Well, Buffett can. He can actually buy back the shares from the people that are selling it at the wrong time. And then if the if the market takes his company extremely high, he can actually sell more shares on the open market, raise some raise some cash and keep it within his company. Um, and so he's basically taken that model and flipped it on its head. And that's why we were asking, William, why do more people not do that? And it gets to a broader point, which is, which is something that Guy Spear discussed with me a tremendous amount when we were working on his book, The, the Educational Value Investor, which is that, that how your company, your investment firm is structured is actually tremendously important. You know, people tend to focus on this issue of, you know, is, is the stock cheap and stuff like that. It doesn't really matter if, you're, if your shareholders are going to bail out at the worst possible moment. So you're not going to have any cash to invest anyway. And this is, this is what's happened with, with a series of the greatest value investors is that it, it, in these moments of crisis, their investors just panicked and ran. And so Bill Miller, who I, I'm a great admirer of, who I think really is an astonishing mind, brilliant, brilliant man. Bill Miller found that his assets went from 
um, went down 90% from peak to trough. You know, he, he initially oh, was managed yeah. $70 billion. He, he said to me that that 90% figure turns out to be quite a standard figure. He said that the same thing happened to Bob Rodriguez. I know that, that um, Yachtman uh, um, at certain points had all of the money flood out of his fund. Um, Jean-Marie Evillard during the, um, during the late 90s tech bubble when he underperformed for, for three years in a row drastically when everyone else was getting rich had, I think his assets went down from 6 billion to 2 billion. So at exactly the moment where there's tremendous opportunity, your shareholders tend to bail out. And so this is, this is a perennial problem. And it's, and it, you know, one of the things that Joel Greenblatt has done, which is really fascinating because Greenblatt is, is a game player, is he's trying to figure out how do you create a system where you're not sabotaged by kind of the foolishness, stupidity, panic, of your investors. And so originally what he did, he's done it in a number of ways. Originally what he did was he, he set up a hedge fund that was very, very concentrated. And um, he and his, his longtime investment partner did unbelievably well. And after five years, they returned half of their shareholders' money. And after 10 years, they returned all of their shareholders' money. So then suddenly they didn't have to worry at all about their shareholders panicking. So that's a, I mean, that's a very luxurious thing to be able to do, but it, but it was so that he didn't have to deal with the emotions of his shareholders because running a concentrated portfolio, sometimes he would find that in a matter of weeks, he lost 30, 40% of his money and he could deal with it because he knew that the stocks were incredibly cheap, but his shareholders just couldn't. And, and so then he's done another thing more recently, which is a, which is a, a different way to solve the same problem, which is in 2012, he set up a series of, of mutual funds and hedge funds that own something like 300 um, very undervalued stocks. They have long positions in those stocks. And then they short 300 very overvalued stocks. And so what he's trying to do is, is sort of remove a tremendous amount of volatility and, and emotion from the process by having a sort of systematic approach. And he, he said to me, you know, the returns are not going to be as good as the returns of my concentrated hedge fund. But it doesn't actually matter because the shareholders are going to be able to stomach it more or are more likely to be able to stomach it because it won't have that volatility. So I, I think, you know, to be, a, to be a really good investor, you, you really need to figure out this emotional psychological side of investing, you know, not just, yeah, I, I buy into this idea that value investing and being contrarian is really smart. You actually have to figure out how am I going to respond when my portfolio is down 50% and simultaneously I get laid off because, uh, you know, the business world is imploding too. You know, are you still going to be able to be rational? Are you still going to be able to buy? And that's what these great investors have is, is not just the intellectual understanding of these concepts, but the, the kind of visceral psychological strength to, to, to be smart and opportunistic at those moments of crisis. And, and William, I can't help asking, is that also how you evaluate who should manage your money? Is that not by only looking at their track records and their philosophy, of course, but also how they managed through the last crisis, for instance? It's, it's a really interesting question because, you know, how do you really assess this? I mean, you know, it, I mean, think about it. When, when someone goes through a divorce, for example, there have been these studies that show that money managers... Uh, returns really are affected by a divorce. How, how do you know what your what your money manager is going to go through? Not not just uh, 
a financial crisis that they're going to be able to deal with, but but they might have a divorce, they might have a sick kid. You know, Don, Donald Yackman had this extraordinarily wrenching thing where his daughter had had a, a terrible stroke and, uh, you know, was in, in a locked-in state where she couldn't move anything other than her eyelids. And, you know, so how do you how do you guess whether your whether your money manager is going to have the the psychological strength to deal with with hardship so i've had this debate for years with this very close friend of mine jason zweig who's a brilliant columnist at the wall street journal personal finance columnist and jason who's interviewed more great managers than anyone on earth and is a brilliant mind in his own right indexes his own money and i've and i've always said to him you know you're just smart enough to come up with the wrong solution you know you're one of the few people who actually could beat the market and and yet you end up indexing and he's always said to me you know yeah maybe you can identify the guys who can beat the market but you know then they're under so much institutional pressure so much pressure from their bosses so much you know there are so many human things that can go wrong and so I, I, I think it's a perennially fascinating debate, you know, that even even if you pick the right guy, will he continue to be the right guy? And I, I haven't truly resolved this. And, and, you know, we can we can look back at someone like Buffett and say after all these years, yeah, he was the right guy. But, you know, I, I didn't invest with him 15 years ago because I thought, well, he's already too old. You know, it's 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 sort of it's sort of like when I, when I was a teenager and I the Rolling Stones did a reunion tour and I thought, well, they're all in their forties. I'm not going to go see them. I, I missed it. And, and now that I'm 46, I'm like, God, I wish I'd gone to see the Rolling Stones. And, and in the same way, you know, I, I wish I'd, um, wish I'd not thought, well, you know, Buffett is, is, uh, you know, it's the law of large numbers. He's, he's managing too much money now and he's kind of old. I kind of missed it. You know, so th- these, these questions of evaluating greatness, and, and writing it and sticking with it uh, are tremendously difficult. Well, I don't mean the boast, but I did see the Rolling Stones. <laughs> now I'm jealous. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'll get to the next question. Um, and they were not as good as what I thought they'd be. So I'm just going to uh, throw that out there it. so you don't have to feel so bad. You should have invested with Buffett instead, you know, and skip <laughs> the Rolling Stones, put, put, the, put the money for the tickets in books, Hathaway B shares. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I should have. All right. So um, the question I got for you, I was immediately captivated by the first person that you mentioned in the book, uh, Irving Kahn, and the picture in the book. I love that picture. And your photographer was amazing in this book. He is a very talented individual. Um, But the picture of uh, Irving, he is sitting down. He's very old. And unfortunately, Irving's passed away since the interview. How old was he whenever you interviewed him, William? Irving was 108. He was in the photograph. In the photograph, he's 108, and and uh, yeah, we, we really haven't focused sufficiently on my extraordinary partner, Michael O'Brien, who really is the reason why the book exists. Because he 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 started five years ago taking these incredible photographs of, of these great investors, and and he started with Charlie Munger, um, and 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 since then he's photographed all these guys like Buffett and Bill Ackman and Irving Kahn and and Joe Greenblatt, and he's just extraordinary, and he has this this kind of ability to, to get very up close to these people and to get them to engage with the camera. And one, one of the things that he does is, is he doesn't talk during, during the photo shoots. He just sort of motions with his fingers, you know, to raise your chin a bit or turn to the right a bit. And so, so I think the, the subjects, whether it's Buffett or Munger or, or any of these guys, they, they see his intense engagement and they're very intense. So, so, so when you look at someone like Buffett in, in his photo, 
you know, he's looking directly at you and there's a sort of aliveness to him. And, and so there was a particular challenge for Michael O'Brien, the photographer, when he was taking this picture of, of Irving Kahn, which I, I talk about in the introduction to the book, which is that Irving kept nodding off in between the shots. <laughs> and, and, and Irving, you know, he was 108 years old and he was tired and his eyes were starting to fail and his hearing was starting to fail. And, and, um, and his grandson, who works for Kahn Brothers, who's an, an analyst at the family firm, uh, who's a wonderful guy, Andrew Kahn, who's an analyst there, um, was sort of standing outside the frame asking asking Irving Kahn tell tell him about the stock that you bought in 1928 you know that yeah. you know or or the stock that you shorted magma copper which you shorted during the you know the crash of 29 and and so Irving sort of wakes up during the photo shoot um, because he's telling this wonderful story of the first stock that he bought in in 1928 to 1929 and so so it captures sort of the aliveness of this extraordinary man. So I had a similar challenge when I was coming to interview him because Andrew Kahn, the grandson, just said to me, he's too sick, he can't talk to you. And I, I was sort of in despair because, you know, I didn't want to do a potted thing where I went to the clips and read what everyone else had said. And, and so we ended up coming up with a solution which, which, which worked to a degree that I almost couldn't have dreamed of, which is, that I, I wrote out a series of questions, probably about six questions, but they were they were sort of deep questions. They were questions I really cared about. So things like when 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 you look back on 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 the hundred and eight years of your life, what are you really proud of? What you know? What's the key to a fulfilling life and not just a not just an extraordinarily long life? And then his grandson Andrew took these questions to him, and over several days. Um, interviewed his grandfather on my behalf and wrote down the answers and sent them to me. And, and there was something about it. I got that email and, and, you know, usually you'd be disappointed that you hadn't interviewed the guy in person. And I, I was tremendously moved by the email and it, you know, one of the things that he said, I mean, there, there was tremendous, there was tremendous investing advice. There was, there was tremendous life advice as well. So I'll, I'll, sh I'll share both if you don't mind. So, so the first thing I said to him, you know, what's the single most important piece of financial advice you can share with our readers? And, and he said, safety. He said, Con considering the downside is the, is the absolute most important thing you need to learn as an investor. And he said, you know, you need to deal with this before you think about making profits. And, and he, he had this lovely image. He said, everyone's in such a hurry. He said, you know, they can, they can make a horse gallop, but can, can they see where they're going? And he, he said, if, if you slow up and you don't take crazy risks and you don't lose money and you, you keep your eye on the downside, you're going to do way better than your gambler friends in, in the long term. And I, I, this to me was a very profound idea because that for one thing, I, I had made one incredibly stupid investing mistake in the course of my, of my investing career. I'm sure, I'm sure I've made more, but this was a spectacularly stupid one where I had, I had invested in a private company that was run by a friend of mine that had incredible technology. And, you know, initially it shot up and I was thinking I was the smartest guy and I felt like I belonged to this ex exclusive community of very, very smart people. You know, Goldman Sachs invested at something like 40 times the valuation that I invested in. And I just felt so smart. And then it just kind of imploded. And, and I sort of... I, I sort of did a lot of soul searching about it afterwards. And I realized the degree to which my ego was involved and that if I'd been, if I'd had my ego under control more and I hadn't cared more about impressing other people or, 
you know, being in with a with a smart, rich set, or whatever, I, I I would have had a lot more money. And you know, I, I I'm um, you know I'm a I'm a writer. I'm not a hedge fund manager, and so so making stupid mistakes counts for me. You know, I you know I still have to pay for my kids to go to college and stuff. And so, you know, the things that I've done really well over the years were the things where I just quietly invested with value guys, and I stuck with it for many years. And so. So listening to Irvin Khan, it was like one of those things where where you hear something that you know already, but when you hear it from someone who's 108 and who's who's lived through World War II, Vietnam, the the crash of 29, and, and you hear how he survived and prospered, you think, man, I wish I'd been smart enough to learn that before, but I'm pretty darn glad to have learned it now. The, the other thing I would say, I was mentioning that he gave... Very important life advice. And this is a recurring theme in the book. We're trying not just to tell people, you know, here's how you invest, here's how you get super rich. You know, I want to learn from someone like Irving Khan, what gave you pleasure in your life? What gives you pride? What gives you satisfaction? And he said, look, it's a a difficult question and it's going to be different for everyone. But he said, family is very, very important. And, And looking back, what really gave him pleasure was family, having healthy kids, building Khan Brothers, this firm that, that, that's kind of great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a huge firm. It has about a billion dollars in assets run now by his son, Tommy, who's also in his 70s. But I, I took that very much to heart. You know, it's very easy to get carried away and think that everything is about, is about getting rich. And, and, you know, you, you look at someone like Irving Khan and he never was flashy. He never was buying fancy boats and big houses. You know, his son, Tommy, would take him to a fancy French restaurant and his dad would just order a burger, you know, and, <laughs> and the only thing he spent his money on really were books. And so I, you know, when you look at someone like Irving Khan, is he, is he the greatest investor? Did he, did he build a massive fortune? Did he, did he average 40% a year? I, I don't really think that's the measure of his greatness. I think there's a kind of there's a kind of life wisdom that you get from him that that um, that's very very important. Two things that I was uh, I, I first want to talk about your idea that you were saying here uh, about family because I think everybody knows that with, deep inside with their in, own intuition. I, I'm just amazed at how often I ignore my own intuition, and I think everybody else probably does it too. Where you know what the right answer is, you don't have to ask anybody, you don't have to read about it in a book. You already know the answer. And I just wonder, I I asked myself this question, like if I started listening to my intuition more every time that I know those answers, just imagine like how much more profitable and fruitful we would all become if we just actually listened (laughs) to our own intuition. It's a, it's a very profound idea. And I, 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 you know, look, I started off as a sort of know-it-all cerebral intellectual who felt like you can, you can crack every nut with, with your brain and, and increasingly, I've become more intuitive and perhaps less rational. And I think, I, I, you know, I'd like to think you get wiser as you become more intuitive and less rational in a strange way. And, and I, I, Guy Spear said to me a fascinating thing about Warren Buffett at some point. He, he, said, he said that he's pretty convinced that, that Warren actually makes all of his investments intuitively. And that there's, you know... <laughs> I mean, there's the, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this, right, with thin slicing that you, you know, you don't really know what's going into an intuitive decision. You know, there, there's tremendous amount of experience and judgment and, and rational activity going on. But 
I went to Howard Marks, who's also really a genius. I mean, Howard Marks has a wonderful, wonderful mind. And I said, I said to him, do you think that's true about Buffett, that he makes his investment decisions intuitively? And Marks agreed. And, and Marks, who's utterly brilliant, agreed that he basically is intuitive too. He said, he said in his early days, he thought that everything was down to his intellect, that that was, that was how he was doing anything. And increasingly, it's intuitive. And so I, I think there's this very profound balance, right, where you, you, want, you want to think as dispassionately and rationally as possible, but you don't want to ignore that message inside you. And I, I, I once spent a lot of time interviewing Jeff Vinnick when he was managing, I guess it was after he had managed the Magellan Fund, which is the biggest mutual fund in the world. And Vinnick said that when, <laughs> that he, when he had made an investment in a very cheap stock and it made him physically nauseous to own it, he knew that it was a good investment. And, and, and Soros you know, listened to the fact that, that he got tremendous back pain as the sort of signal that something was wrong with his portfolio. And so I, 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 think, I think for all of us, you're, you're very wise to, to be connected to your sort of intuitive sense while obviously not disabling your, your sort of rational analysis. I mean, you don't want to be in the middle of a financial crisis and saying, yeah, I, I, I just feel good about myself. You know, <laughs> you want to be sort of, you know, brutally analytical at the same time. Absolutely. I always quote this thing to my, my kids. There's a, there's a wonderful line from, from E.M. Forster where he says, um, only connect the prose and the passion and both will be exalted. And I, I think that idea of, of the connecting the prose and the passion applies to everything, right? It's, it's, it's the intellect and intuition. It, it's everything, really. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. Uh, Stig and myself and um, one of the people that writes for us, her name is Nitra. Uh, we all three took a personality test. And one of the things that it does in the personality test is it weighs your sensing versus your intuition. And so we all took that and it was really funny to see the results. And one of the things I want to highlight is Bill Gates... Warren Buffett, uh, Steve Jobs, those guys all on these tests all sensed very high on the intuition piece of the of the test. And intuition versus sensing is one of the variables of it. Uh, so I just want to throw that fascinating. Out. So both Chris and I, we are big fans of of Manish, and he's really someone that we've been looking into. Uh, even though he's he's kind of a, a private person, I'd say. I don't know what, what your impression is, but but that's at least what the uh, the impression that we have. But I would actually like to hear if you can give us any background information on Monish. I mean, he's obviously a smart guy. He is, you know, he's having 26% annually for 19 years. And soon he's going to launch his, uh, his new company that's been listed here in the fall. Or that is at least what the rumors are saying. But could you give us any background information on Monish? Yeah, Monish is absolutely fascinating. I flew to Irvine, California to meet Monish and, and spent the best part of six hours interviewing him. And I would say for the next couple of days, I was kind of buzzing, you know, because he's so um, he's so larger than life and so full of personality and such a brilliant mind that you kind of um, you're almost on a high after after talking to him. And one of the things that's really fascinating about Monish is that basically he started out as a tech guy. Right. He, he, he studied engineering. Um, and he took a class at, uh, at Clemson College. He, he, he was an immigrant from India, and he took a class at Clemson College, not a very well-known university, and in finance. And he said he just thought the finance students were idiots. And he said none of them would be able to cope with his electrical engineering class. And so he totally dismissed the idea of an investing career. And, and his finance professor 
saw his grades and just, he was so off the charts that he came top by such a wide margin that his finance professor said, you know, no, you, you got to become an investor. And, and Manish dismisses this, sets up a tech company, which ultimately he sold for about $6 million. And, um, and, and along the way, uh, I think this is in about 1994, he reads about Buffett really because he'd been in, he, he, I think, I think Monish had been in an airport and he stumbles a, across a book by Peter Lynch reads Peter Lynch talking about Buffett, starts to study Buffett and starts to, starts to think, well, wait a second, how did this guy accumulate money at such high, uh, high rates of return? And so he starts to sort of reverse engineer what Buffett did. And he said, basically, I figured out that, that Buffett was laying down the laws of the investing universe. And so what, what's fascinating about Monish is that he has this he has this idea that that you really don't need any original ideas in life at all to do brilliantly. And so Monish describes himself as a shameless copycat. And so he just dissects what Buffett does and later what Munger does. And he he launches a 30-year game to turn one million dollars into one billion dollars by compounding at 26% a year. And and so what's fascinating to me is this idea that that you can kind of reverse engineer the great minds and figure out how do I apply this to my own life? And, and Monish has done this in this sort of maniacally focused way in every area of his life. So um, the, 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 the structure of his fund is based on the limited partnerships that Buffett had in the 1950s. So you have an annual hurdle where you have to make 6%, I think, and, and, after the 6%, you just get 25% of all of the profits and there's no management fee, no annual management fee. So if you do really, really well in your investment returns, you make an enormous profit as the money manager. But if you're a bad investor, you make, you make nothing. And so it's a really nice alignment between the interests of the shareholder and the interests of the fund manager. And, and likewise, he, he looks at the degree of concentration in, in, a, in a small number of holdings that people like Buffett had. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Why would I want a portfolio of, a, of 100 stocks? If I have 100 stocks, there's no way I'm going to beat the market because I'm going to really be matching the market. I'm just going to be a, a closet indexer. So, so I think what's really fascinating about Monish is, is, is this, very, this very important fundamental idea of how you rip off other people's great ideas. And what, what Monish said to me is that we have this kind of obsession with being original thinkers. We all, we all kind of feel like there's something almost holy and righteous about having our own ideas. And he's like, look, I have no shame at all about going through the portfolios of someone like, you know, Bill Miller or David Einhorn or, or, or Buffett and saying, why is this terrible company in this guy's portfolio? And he said, if you look at someone like Miller's portfolio, when you know that Miller's really smart and he's made an incredibly dumb bet on airlines, you, you've got to say, well, why the hell has he invested in airlines? He's got to have seen something that I haven't seen. Yeah. And so, so part of what he does is to look for things that we know are terrible. Like Buffett and Munger had always said that airline stocks are terrible. And here's Miller saying, uh, you know, they're wrong and I'm making a massive bet on airlines. And Miller, of course, made a fortune in the last few years betting on airlines. And so, so to me, there's something very, very profound about this idea of, of copying and mimicking other people's best ideas. And, I, and, and so when I left Monish, part of what I was excited about was this idea of, so how do I apply this to my own life? You know, and so when, when I, <laughs> so one of the things that I did, which, which uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say, but I, 
I thought, you know what, there's a certain, there's a certain poetic beauty in cloning the cloner. And so I, so I went off and bought one of the stocks that, that Monish's portfolio, you can, you can see his uh, 13F filings. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. He's got 47% of his money in just two stocks. I, I'd, be pretty, I'd be pretty smart to own, <laughs> own one or two of his stocks. So, so I kind of cloned the cloner. I, I copied the copycat, um, <laughs> uh, which gave me, sort of, it gave me sort of poetic pleasure. But then, then I started also to think, what, what do I learn from all of these people? If I apply this idea of copying the great ideas um, what, what, do, what do I learn from, from, say, spending time with Tom Gaynor, who runs the Markel Corporation, or John Spears, who's a, a well-known value investor at Tweedy Brown? And, and, and you know, you start, to, you start to look at these questions like um, how they give away money, for example. And you think, well, that's really interesting, because when I interview all of these great investors, the happiest ones seem to be more philanthropic. And, you know, maybe it's an absurd generalization, but I think actually to some degree it's really true. So I think you can apply this idea of, of reverse engineering and copying great ideas really in any area of your life. And it's a, it's a very, very powerful concept. So when, whenever I see something about Monish, I don't have the same connection as you, so I had to watch him on, on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still pretty good, right? <laughs> but you know, I, I always get the impression that he's very uh, authentic. Like you'd be saying, uh, I really like to take a nap every day so he has this couch where he can take a nap and he's saying i don't think i'm the i don't have the same brilliant mind as as a lot of other billionaires so i would just copy what they do i mean he's he's really to me he seems like uh the most powerful thing about Monish is that he's so authentic about what he can and can't do do you agree with that it, it, it's a it, that's a very perceptive observation on your part i think part of the strength of Monish. And, and also of Guy Spear, who's very, very close to Monish. So they, you know, there's a sort of mind meld going on there. They've discussed a lot of these ideas. Part of the strength comes from the fact that they're true to who they are. And I think, I think it, it, it seems kind of paradoxical, right? This idea that you're, you're cloning and copying other people's ideas, and yet you're having to be true to who you are. And, and I, I, it's, it's, it's a nuance, but it's an important nuance to understand that it, at some very deep level, you, Monish believes that you need to be you need to be correctly aligned within yourself, and so you need you. He, he believes you know if if you're a sociopath, you need to be true true to uh, your inner sociopath, which Guy disagrees with. Guy 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 is kind of appalled by that idea, um, <laughs> but but you know Monish Monish said to me that you know he he wasn't a great CEO. He didn't really like to nurture young talent. Um, and, and when he was running a tech company, you know, obviously he has a brilliant mind and he could do it very well, but it didn't really play to his strengths. Whereas being a hedge fund manager, he's the consummate game player. He, you know, he has no emotion. He's, he's totally um, brilliant at the sort of mathematical probabilistic side of it. So figuring out how to, how to be true to who you are, how to, how to play to your own strengths, I think is, is absolutely central to the brilliance of someone like Monish. So it sounds to me like uh, his new uh, holding company that he's getting ready to start, he's probably not going to be the CEO of it. He'll probably just be the investment officer or something. Is he going to outsource? Or is he going to hire somebody to fill that role since he doesn't enjoy that piece of it? I, I think it's an interesting question. I, 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 think, um, I think a big part of what you do in running a business like that, which will clearly be replicating what, what Buffett has done with Berkshire, is you're allocating capital. And I think... Uh, 
I think Monish is extraordinarily well suited to that. But I think I think he's he's trying to stretch. You know, he's not he he's not comfortable just doing what he's always done, and so he he realizes that there's this tremendous strength in having an insurance business because you you know as, as Buffett figured out you get the float right you get the the, the premiums from from your insurance customers but you don't have to pay out for quite a while on on their claims and so you get to invest that money so it gives you a tremendous structural advantage so because he's a great game player you know he's stacking the deck in his favor by having captive capital investors who can't bail out at the worst possible moment and and by having this ability to invest the float so i i think that trumps the fact that he's not someone who you know, loves nurturing 22 year old employees who are going through emotional crises. You know, I, I think, I, I think it's, um, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger picture is that it plays tremendously to his strengths. So, you know, guys very intrigued by the possibility that, that Monish could turn out sort of to be the, 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 the Buffett of our generation. I, I'm not, I'm not sure anyone can turn out to be the Buffett of our generation, but I, I think, you know, Monish really stands out in as, as a, as an extraordinary, middle-aged investor, I guess is about 50 now. Bill Ackman stands out as someone who's very extraordinary. You know, the, the book is, is sort of full of these very great older, old, older investors, you know, some in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then, and then Irving Kahn at 108. Um, but I think there's this newer generation of people like Ackman and Monish who are, who are also pretty remarkable. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. So I've got a question that wasn't on the uh, questions that we plan on asking. And uh, I've been studying Ray Dalio a lot. And I know that he wasn't in your book, but um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on Ray, because whenever I look at somebody that could potentially uh, replace Buffett as far as being an investing genius uh, for the years to come in the next 10 or 20 years, I think Ray Dalio could potentially be one of those guys. I find it very interesting that Dalio is a macro guy and he's also a hedge fund manager. So he didn't take the same model that Buffett had but yet his returns are just phenomenal. So I was curious if you knew anything about Ray Dalio or just from being in this I, circle. I think, think Dalio is a fascinating man. I, I actually haven't interviewed Dalio, but but I've read a great deal about him as you have. And he's, he's clearly fascinating. I mean, a, a, a real iconoclast as well. You know, this whole idea that he has of, of, of radical truthfulness, you know, that, that yeah. people in his office have to tell each other the truth. They have to be direct. They 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 can't talk behind one another's backs. I, th- I think if you if you talk behind people's backs, you know it's three strikes and you're out. You're literally fired. It's something like that. I mean, you know, it can sound kind of like a crazy cult like place where they sort of they um, record your conversations and everything. But I think actually at some level, he's he's dealing with the same ideas that people like Monish are dealing with, that you want total truthfulness. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's also, he's also fascinating in this idea that he, he tests his hypotheses by getting other people to challenge his ideas. And so there's this sense that you don't really want to be an investor who just says, yeah, I know best. You need, you need people to come in and say, this is why you're wrong. And I, I think I think that's a it's a fascinating aspect of value investing, right? Is to is to be simultaneously to have this tremendous self confidence to go against the crowd, but also to be humble enough and open enough to think, what if I'm wrong? And I think Dalio embodies that. I, I, I Nigren, Bill Nigren, told me a fascinating thing that he'd learned from Michael Steinhardt, who he was friendly with, who also is another great hedge fund manager, who's who's totally different from the type of money managers we're talking about. You know, Steinhardt had amazing returns by trading, you know, you could turn over his whole portfolio in a couple of weeks, as I understand it. But Steinhardt also had this idea that Nigren learned from him that, that you needed to do devil's advocate reviews. Uh, and so there was this idea of devil's advocate reviews where you got the, the biggest bear and the biggest bull on a particular stock to come in and have lunch with you. And, and Nigren adopted this from Steinhardt and, and any Anytime he's about to buy a stock, he, he has someone on his staff literally doing a devil's advocate review saying, here's why you're dumb. Here's what can go wrong. So I, I, think, I think Dalio and a lot of these others embody that very powerful idea. I love that. I love that too. And William, I can't help by comparing Dalio and Moniz also because that is, this is something Preston and I have really been digging into. Because the thing about Dalio is that he has this uh, culture in this company. He has a a lot of people around him that can tell him when he's wrong. Uh, but it, it's a much larger setup than someone like uh, Monish, for instance. Like he basically doesn't have a setup. Well, he has a secretary, but he mm. doesn't have a team analyst. A, a part-time secretary, I think. <laughs> he has about two or three part-time secretaries. 
<laughs> yeah, because you know he's been asked this, and again, well, I don't have your your connections, or it's not like uh, my good friend Haruma Chandra has sat next to him. I'm so envious at the <laughs> NL meeting this year. You know, I have to watch him on YouTube. But one, <laughs> of, the, he, <laughs> one of the things he did say on YouTube was that he did want a team around him. I mean, he tried that, and that that didn't work because there was too much noise. It's really hard to say no to someone who says. This is the analysis I spent three months on working on. He would say, I don't think so. I don't feel it. And like a better words. So do you think it's like, it's a question of having the best setup or again, do you think it turns back to who do we are as a, as a person? What's, what fits you? Yeah, I think it's a very profound and important point. You, you need to find a setup that's true to who you are. So, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know, look, if, if I, uh, if I'm investing, I don't think, even even though I'm quite contrarian and I'm quite good at buying stocks when other people are panicking, I don't think I really have the patience to um, spend all my time doing spreadsheets. And, you know, I, I just don't want to do all the number related stuff. So I need to be self-aware enough to say that's never going to be my strength. But I, I need to invest with someone like Guy or Monish who can do that stuff for me. And, and I, I think for each of us as an investor, knowing yourself is incredibly important. And, and so Monish, Monish has these sort of um, antisocial tendencies where he tells the truth. Um, he, he doesn't couch anything in soft words. I mean, he's a very charming, very likable guy. I, I smile as I talk about Monish because I like him very much. He's a very large and life character. But, you know, he's rude and brash in a kind of very enjoyable, entertaining way. And he's not, he's not necessarily a team player. He's, he's a brilliant game player who can sit there quietly in his room, in his office in Irvine, which is not in a fancy building. It's in a, you know, it's basically in an industrial park. He doesn't need to impress anyone with, with how rich he is or how fancy it is. He's created his own setup where he's detached from the world. He's detached from Wall Street and he's thinking very clearly. Guy Spear has done the same thing. He, he figured out that when he was in New York, it messed with his head because, you know, he, he's friends with people like Bill Ackman who were managing billions of dollars and becoming multi-billionaires. And, you know, there were all of these marketers around who were saying, you know, I, I, I think you should really be running a $5 billion fund. And it's very, very hard to be true to who you are. And, and so Guy figured out he needed to go to Zurich and be very quiet, very detached from the crowd. Guy, guy has sort of, um, you know, this wandering mind where his mind's sort of all over the place because, you know, he's got a brilliant, brilliant intellect, but his mind is all over the place. And so he figured out, I need to, I need to create an environment where my mind can be like a calm pond, where I can really think. And so I think for each of us as investors, you really have to think about your environment very, very carefully. And that includes who you work with, who you hang out with, how, how, you, uh, how you set up your office. You know, we, we, would, we had this discussion, um, Guy and I, often about, you know, whether, whether you should have your Bloomberg terminal there, you know, whether, whether your Bloomberg helps you or not, or, you know, having, having this fire hose of information coming at you can be a tremendous benefit to some investors, you know, who need to trade every three seconds or whatever. But for someone like... like like Monish, who's who's investing for, you know, five years in a stock that's beaten down and he's hoping to quadruple or quintuple his money. Why does he care what's happening in the next 10 seconds? And so I think I think figuring out who you are and what works for you is a is a very profoundly important aspect of investing. 
So, uh, William, we're big fans of Joel Greenblatt as well. And I know you've talked about him a little bit uh, earlier, but uh, I'm real curious to know if he has something new. What What's really got his attention these days uh, whenever you were interviewing him? I, and for people out there, Joel uh, Greenblatt has this uh, magic formula. He's written two books, two fantastic books about more of a systematic way to uh, in, invest like Warren Buffett. But I'm real curious to know what has his interest uh, more recently. You know, Joel is a really fascinating character because, uh, you know, this goes back to the point that Bill Nigram was making, that that you need to be fully focused to be a great investor. Joel is kind of a uh, an, an aberration in that he has this tremendous mind that, that goes in multiple different directions. And so if you look at if you look at Joel's career, he's he's had three or four different ways of investing over the years you know he started off as a focused investor very concentrated portfolio later he came up with this magic formula which which grew out of a i think it was something like a 35 million dollar research project that that he and his partner funded where they were trying to figure out how do you systematize the the way that we've been investing all these years at Gotham Capital which is his his hedge fund firm and, and he came up with with a couple of very simple um, measures, such as high return on capital, um, that sort of encapsulated what what Buffett does and and what um, Ben Graham did. So then he writes a book that sells more than three hundred thousand copies. Um, he's written multiple books. He's a superb writer. He's been a philanthropist in a really interesting way. So he he's been an absolutely fundamental kind of driving force in the charter school movement in New York. And he's, he, you know, he, he's, he's done all of these different things. So he kind of, and, and at the same time, he's been a professor at Columbia business school for something like 19 years where I, I don't think he gets paid. I think he does it just because he likes to, he likes to feel that he's passing on his knowledge to the next generation. And so, you know, he starts his class basically by saying, uh, you know, this, is, this is not about the money. And if, if all it's going to be is about the money, you're going to have kind of a meaningless life. So you need to share the proceeds of, of what you make. And so, so he's a very, very multifaceted individual. The, the thing that I think is really fascinating, at least to me, is the kind of common denominator in his, in his approach to all of these different things, whether it's education, philanthropy, investing, um, writing. He's, he's trying to figure out how you beat the system in a kind of replicable way. So, so this idea that, that there, there are ways of doing things better if you use your mind to solve the puzzle. And, and so he started off, as we mentioned before, at, at Wharton, where his professors insisted that markets were efficient. So then he spent much of his life figuring out, no, if I, if I invest the way Buffett and Graham talk about, then I can prove that the market's not efficient. So that's one way in which he beat the system. Then, then he, he creates this, this new set of funds in 2012 that I was mentioning before with the 300 long, 300 short stocks, where it's, it's again, it's a way of removing emotion from the process so that you systematize your investments so that your, your shareholders are less likely to sabotage themselves by becoming very emotional. So then he's done a similar thing with education. He funded these charter schools that educate very underprivileged kids in difficult areas of New York City. And um, he was trying to figure out how, once again, you beat the system by providing 
a tremendous education to these kids with limited resources. And so I would say that in all of these areas of his life, he's, he's, he's looking for these replicable, systematic approaches to, to, to winning the game. So I, I think he's a, he's a really fascinating case. He's got this kind of relentless curiosity and intelligence to him. And, and it was interesting to me when, when he came into our meeting, I, I was sort of reading a book and because uh, he, he was a little bit late and he's immediately asked me, so what is the book? What's it about? What do you learn from it? And, <laughs> and I'd say a lot of the great investors were sort of inside their own heads. You know, they would talk and, and he was very, very engaged with me. It's like, he's trying to figure out what, what can I learn from this? And so there's a kind of hungriness to his intellect, which I think is, is part of, part of his brilliance. So it's really interesting that the way that you describe that, because uh, one of the things that Charlie Munger says whenever he's talking about Buffett is that Buffett is a total learning machine. And he says that that's his greatest you know, quality. That's the thing that has made him his it's really his essence. And you're really kind of describing the exact same thing as the way you were describing this with Joel Greenblatt, where he's just. He's trying to find a complex problem, whether it's education or investing or whatever it is. He finds these complex problems. He tries to um, figure out how he can re-engineer some type of process that, that makes it more efficient. And then not only does he figure that out, but then he shares it with all these people. And I think that's the part of it that I like the most is that he's teaching the students for free. He's putting all this stuff. I know he has an online forum and community. I mean, it's just totally amazing. It's awesome. I, I think for a lot of these guys they're not ultimately motivated by the money. And, and I think, I think they start off very motivated by the money. You know, they, they think, you know, well, it'll give me tremendous independence and, and maybe they want the toys and baubles that you get from money and the prestige and stuff. And then I think gradually for a lot of them, the, the money becomes kind of uninteresting. And, and so I think for someone like Greenblatt, it's, it's really about solving the puzzle. That's the thrill. It's how, how do I use my brain to figure out a better way to do this? And so I would say that for him, part of the pleasure of being a great investor is proving his professors at Wharton wrong again and again. <laughs> so it's like not, not, not only did he do it with the concentrated portfolio hedge fund that he ran early in his career, but then he's done it about three other times. And, and he even came up with a better way of indexing. And so there's a, there's a kind of restless brilliance to his intellect that I think you see with with Charlie Munger, where Munger is, you know, M Munger will not only give away money to, uh, uh, you know, Stanford, but he'll say, no, I want to I want to design the dorms as well. Or he'll, <laughs> he'll not only get catamaran, but he'll say, I I'm going to design the catamaran. And so I think some some of these guys are very narrow and, and some of them are intellectually kind of voracious. And, and the ones that interest me most are the ones who are intellectually voracious. You know, so Munger has an incredible mind. I, I think Bill Miller has a really wonderful mind and Miller is a, is a great investor, but Miller's, Miller's background is nothing like the sort of narrow background that a lot of these investors have. You know, a lot of them have, have MBAs and went to, you know, Columbia and Harvard and, and Stanford and Yale and stuff. Miller was studying philosophy at Johns Hopkins University and, and then went into military intelligence. And he is a total learning machine. You know, he's applied, he's applied lessons from, you know, the Santa Fe Institute, chaos theory, all of these different things. And I, I, one of the reasons why I find him such a riveting character is that, is that his brain is so alive. You know, he's constantly learning. And it was fascinating to me that when we were talking about the financial crisis, 
you know, where he really got hit badly and was really going through the ringer. I, I was asking him, I was asking him, how, how did you deal with it emotionally? And what he was reading during the financial crisis was Seneca and Epictetus, and a book that Admiral, Vice Admiral Stockdale had written about being tortured as a, as a POW during the Vietnam War. Huh. And so for, for Miller, there's this sense in which, in which philosophy is very much alive and it's something that you use to inform the way you invest, to, to, to help you handle adversity, but also r- really to, to teach you uh, how, how to analyze difficult situations. So he, he was always obsessed with people like Wittgenstein and William James. It, it was one of the reasons why he made a fortune off, off Amazon, because he was fascinated by this idea of how, how people misperceive reality, which is something he'd learned from, from William James, who was a psychology professor at Harvard, and, um, and from Wittgenstein. So I think these people who, as, as Munger would put it, have, have multiple mental models can have a tremendous advantage. Yeah, so you know, I, when, when reading your book, uh, all of these 33 different characters, they had very different personal traits, but still a lot of them had this uh, philanthropic uh, trait. So, and, and especially uh, Mason Hawkins, he was someone that really impressed me. Uh, could you tell me about your your interview with him and and specifically about the Orat culture he's talking about at his fund? Mason Hawkins is really interesting because he he had a, he had a meeting early in his career with Sir John Templeton, who became a kind of friend and mentor to him. And Templeton emphasized to Mason that you you know if you're really just doing this for yourself, it's of pretty limited usefulness. You know, if if the goal basically is to buy yourself fancy planes and, and stuff like that. You know, are you, really, are you really having much of a life or making much of a contribution? And, and Mason Hawkins took this very much to heart and, and he made philanthropy and, and this idea of sharing wealth part of the corporate DNA of his firm, which is Southeastern Asset Management. And one of the things that was intriguing to me was when he was talking about who he hires at Southeastern, he said that one of the six or so main criteria is that the people should be generous. And he said, Un- unless, unless you're willing to share your excess wealth, it's unlikely that you're actually going to be that successful as an investor. Because he said, at a certain point, your passion is going to wane, your, your discipline, your drive is probably going to wane. And so to him, it seems absolutely integral, this idea that you're, you're making money not just for yourself, but, but so that you can do stuff philanthropically. And I, I, think, I, I think that's a really profound idea. You know, you... For a lot of these guys, we, we look at them and we kind of idolize them because they're rich and then they're on the covers of Forbes and Fortune and Business Week and the like. But at the end of the day, you know, what have they really done? Like, will we, will we look at, at them because they were multi-billionaires when they were dead or will we, will we admire them because they did extraordinary things philanthropically? You know, I think that that's such a strong point uh, to really get through on this interview, I know from my own my own self. Whenever I was just researching different people that have had large financial success, you look at Rockefeller. One of his biggest things that he talks about, and, and he pretty much goes down in the books as being the wealthiest person of all time. Um, one of his biggest things was ten percent tithing. He he absolutely believed that he had to give away at least 10% of whatever it was that he was making. You saw the same thing with Carnegie. In fact, the, uh, between uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie, they had this race, so this philanthropic race. You look at Buffett, you look at Dahlia, you look at all these guys, and they are just giving away. Look at Bill Gates. I mean, the foundation that he's, him and his wife have set up is just amazing 
And I think all these guys that are just really at the top, the guys that are really, you know, the true professionals in this field, they are enormous givers. And I think that that's just so important to highlight to people as they're trying to make their own contributions in life. I think it's a very profound and important idea. And I, I, I would say it works on a number of levels being generous. You know, there's, there's this, uh, you know, we were talking before about Guy and Ken Schubenstein discussing this idea of compounding goodwill. I, I think it, I think it works in a pragmatic way that, that if you're kinder and you're more sharing and you're more decent, you end up with, with better relationships, you have a better life. And, and so one of the things that was fascinating to me in the book is there, there are, there are certain people you look at who are just enormously rich and enormously good investors and, 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 you know, you're sort of awed by them initially. And then there are people you look at who are really successful human beings and you look at them and you think, wow, this is a guy I really, really admire. And, and with some of them, maybe it gets back to the point we're making before about intuition as, as well as rational, rational analysis. When you're sitting with someone and you're kind of looking in their eyes, you can sort of see, is there, is there a glow there? Is this person alive? How happy are they? And, and I would say there were several people who seemed totally alive and totally vibrant, had this kind of glow to them. And on the whole, they tended to be the people who were more generous, more philanthropic, kinder, more focused on their families. And I, I'm not trying to be sort of moralistic about this, uh, you, you know, but but it it works. I mean, you look at you look at people like Tom Gaynor or John Spears. These are very very decent people, and they're kind of there's a there's a sort of kindness to them. And without wanting to get sort of mawkish or sentimental, you you, you look in their eyes and they feel very alive. They, there's a kind of warmth to them and a, a humility to them, and and so. I, I think, you know, I had this discussion with my daughter where she, she said to me, of, of these two guys, who's more successful? One of them was Marty Whitman. And, and I said, well, you know, Marty Whitman came from nothing and, you know, had nothing during, uh, you know, the, uh, during the 1920s. You know, he, he was worried about buying a pretzel for one cent during the 1920s. You know, he really had nothing. And now he has all of these scholarships for underprivileged kids in, in really difficult neighborhoods. He, he does it in, in the Palestinian territories. He's done it for underprivileged African-American kids. And so is he more successful or less successful than somebody who's worth $10 billion? I, I would argue that probably he's more successful. Yeah. Yeah, you look at uh, Tony Robbins. I think he's a perfect example. And the thing that I really like about... Uh, these people and the way that they're giving. Tony Robbins went through this experience in his life where he wasn't able to even pay for a meal. And there was this person that came up and paid for a meal for him. And now he's on this rampage where he's feeding the stick. Do you remember the number? How many people he feeds in a year with uh, free meals? Um, I would say 50 million. Yeah. It's uh. like, it's like 50 million meals a year is how many meals he's paid. And so what I really like is how these people had such a negative experience early on in their life and it shaped them and, and, and just transformed them. And they remember that, but then when they go back and then they, they use that negative experience to basically come full circle and they just bring so much beauty into life with the way that they contribute using Tony Robbins as an example. And I think so many other people um, have similar experiences. Maybe they weren't educated early on and then they found a way to contribute later on. And it's just, it's really neat to see that come full circle with some of these different people. But go ahead, Stig. Uh, yeah. So William, I, w I was thinking about uh, uh, Fantenberg. 
Yeah, so William, I was thinking about uh, Vandenberg because he truly had a very, very difficult beginning, uh, probably also compared to a lot of the the other people that you have in your book. Could you perhaps uh, tell us about his story and, and your experience interviewing him? Yeah, Arnold Vandenberg is a perfect example of what you guys were just talking about, of someone who comes from tremendously difficult circumstances and somehow transforms their life in an extraordinarily dramatic way. So Arnold Vandenberg was born Jewish in 1939, not a very, uh, not a very fortuitous time to be born into, into a Jewish family in Europe. He, he was born on the same street as Anne Frank in Amsterdam. And so for the first couple of years of his life, he was hidden. And, um, and the family was terrified that the Nazis would come into the house and would hear him cry and they'd all get killed. So at a certain point, they, his parents made this tremendously difficult decision and decided that they would split up. They would have him hidden away in an orphanage. And so a 19-year-old girl who didn't know the family comes and smuggles Arnold Vandenberg out of the house across Amsterdam takes him out of the city and hides him in an orphanage where he, where he spends the next few years. And Arnold said to me that one of the things he wrestled with later in life was why on earth would this girl who, who didn't even know us risk her life to save, to save mine? And he said it also astonished him that her father was prepared to risk his own daughter's life to, to, save, to save him. And he said, he said it, it tormented him, this question, for many years, like what, what had motivated her and the father. And he said, he, he, he said that later in life he had a psychiatrist who said to him, well, it's simple. He said, you know, some people, their, their life is more important than their values. And for other people, their values are more important than their life. And she was one of, one of those people. And, and Arnold decided very early on that because he'd been saved by this girl, he wanted to be the sort of person who lived a kind of value-driven life. You know, he, he, he you know, and the, the drama of his story just continued. He, his parents both were taken to Auschwitz and they, they remarkably, they survived and they came to pick him up from the orphanage when he was six. And he told me that he couldn't recognize them. Uh, and, and he said, I didn't care. He said, I was so desperate to get out of there that I would have gone with anyone. And he said he was so frail that his father couldn't even pick him up. His father was afraid to hold him. He was very mal malnourished and he couldn't walk at the time. He was, he was sort of crawling around on his hands and knees. And his parents actually thought he had brain damage because he was kind of slow and, and he'd been so malnourished for all those years. And they moved to, I think, East Los Angeles to a, a pretty rough, rough area. And Arnold, you know, is a skinny immigrant kid and he's getting beaten up and and just having a terrible time. And, and at a certain point, he starts fighting back and he starts rope climbing, which apparently in those days was a kind of competitive uh, gymnastic event. And he becomes incredibly strong by rope climbing. And, and he has this sort of total transformation in his life where he, he realizes that he, by visualizing by visualizing how to do something in, in a way that this other champion rope climber had done it, he can kind of impersonate what they've done and he can kind of realize his own dreams through sort of the, the strength of his own self-belief and, and mirroring what they've done. And so he begins this extraordinary transformation and at a certain point decides, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to become a money manager. And, you know, he, he said to me, I have no innate skill as a money manager. You know, he's, he's an incredibly truthful, honest, decent bloke. And so, you know, if there's something he can say that's negative about himself, like, no, I'm not that smart or I have no innate talent for this, he'll, he'll tell you it. 
So he literally, he takes, he takes a photograph of, of a well-known prominent investor in Barron's and he sort of pins this photograph to, to his desk, I think, under the glass surface on his desk. And he sort of starts to visualize himself being a great money manager. And he becomes obsessed with hypnosis, with, with all of these, these ideas of, of sort of visualizing your dreams. And so his, his transformation from this kind of um, incredible hard luck story of a kid growing up with really no chance of success it's, it's just an extraordinary transformation. And, and these days he, he manages about $1.6 billion. He's beaten the market over 30 or so years. And he's, he's just sort of a remarkable guy. And he, he, he talks a lot about mastering your own mind, the degree to which everything is possible if you gain control over your own consciousness. And so there's a kind of, there's a kind of practical wisdom to him that I think is very, is very deep and fascinating and, you know, he's also, he's also this very sharing person. So he, he's, one of the things that I loved about him is his hobby is basically to give people books. And so, so since, since I've, I've had my conversations with him, I must have had about half a dozen conversations with him. He keeps sending me books. He's just like this <laughs> lovely, generous guy. And, and he said to me, you know, there's, there's nothing that makes me feel better than when I've given somebody something or shared something that's changed their life. And he said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's why we're here. And so I, 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 think, I think there are people in this book who are really remarkable money makers. And then there are people in this book who are really remarkable human beings. And, and I, it's not mutually exclusive. You can be both. But I, I, I think Arnold Vandenberg is a really good example of someone who's a, who's a truly remarkable human being. William, speaking of Vandenberg and the thing about giving books away that they can change other people's lives, um, which book would you give away to someone that was very dear to you that could change that person's life? That's a great question. There's one book that I read in the last year that had a big impact on me. That was something that had had a big impact on, on Monish Pabrai, also on Guy Spear, and actually also on Arnold Vandenberg, which is a, a book that you may or may not have read called Power Versus Force, The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior. Mm. And it's by this guy, David Hawkins. You know, one, one of the ideas in it is that is, is that you just want to be totally truthful and honest. And if, if you're totally truthful, really at a deep level, then, then you sort of resonate with people um, because they sense your integrity and they can tell when you're lying. And, and even, if, even if they don't really know rationally that you're lying, they sort of intuit it and they, can, they, they sense that there's something misaligned about you. And, and Monish has taken this idea very much on board. It's, it's very integral in everything that he does, even, even the way that he communicates with shareholders. Same, same with Guy. Guy, in his book, The Educational Value Investor, just wants to tell the truth. You know, if he messed up in some way, he wants to, he wants to tell the truth about it. And I think that's one reason why his book has sold, you know, 26,000 copies already, because it, you know, people, people want you not to lie. And I think so many people in in the financial industry and business feel this, this sense that they have to market themselves and they have to, they have to kind of put their best foot forward. And, you know, Arnold Vandenberg called me after our interviews and said, I need you to understand something. He said, my returns have not been great in the last few years. And the reason they've not been great is because I messed up. I made these mistakes, which I'm now going to explain to you. And he said, you need to understand, um, that this is not because the market has gone against me. This is because I messed up. And there's something, 
incredibly powerful about somebody who's prepared to tell you the truth in that way. And, and I, I think most people would say that that was a really dumb thing to do and that you should, you should obscure any, any bad stuff about what you've done. But I, I think it resonates at a very deep, in a very deep way if you behave that way. I, I totally agree with you a thousand percent. And I think the, the reason that it works so well is because it's immediate credibility. And I think people don't realize that. I think everyone is so scared and they're actually being driven by their own fears of people then judging me in a negative light or whatever it might be. But I think what they're failing to look at is the positive piece to it of whenever you are truthful like that, you have immediate credence and immediate truth that I know I can trust you. And, tr- and truth is and trust is what glues our entire society together. When you trust one another, that's what holds it all together. And um, amazing I point. Right. And I, I think you sense it in, in your relationships with people. Uh, you know, I, I was reading something that Buffett said recently. Um, well, I, I was, it was actually an old speech of his. And he said that in, in 41 years, I've never seen Charlie take advantage of anybody. And think of the power of that to be partners with someone who you can say, this guy never tried to take advantage of them. He never lied, never took advantage. That's an astonishingly powerful thing. Now, there must have been times in the short term where if Munger and Buffett had behaved immorally, they would have profited. And yet they chose not to. And I would argue that that's one reason why 40,000 or so people go to Omaha each year. It's not it's not because Buffett is the greatest investor of all time, although he is. It's because he tells the truth. Yeah. And so I, I, I think however, however you come at this idea of telling the truth, it's a, you know, whether it's through power versus force, this book by David Hawkins, or it's through being, you know, uh, a student of spirituality, or it's through studying Buffett, it doesn't really matter, but it's a very, very powerful idea. And, and, you know, we're all liars at some level. We all do things that we're not proud of and, and conceal stuff. So it's, uh, this is not to, this is not to make out that any, any of us is totally, totally righteous, but I, I think when you see people like, like Buffett and Munger trying to tell the truth, it makes you, it makes you want to move in that direction. I, I think, I think realizing that you can become one of the richest men in the world while being truthful and honest is a very, very powerful lesson. And that's, that's probably the most important lesson that we, we get from, from Buffett and Munger. Fantastic. Uh, just for our audience, so William Green, as you can see, absolutely brilliant mind. The name of the book is The Great Minds of Investing. It is just amazing book. The pictures in this book, the writing in this book, just fantastic. So, William, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, this was such a pleasure. I know that our audience is just going to eat this up and really enjoy the the conversation. So, thank you so much for joining us. Uh- Thank you. It's just been a, a, a real delight for me to chat with you both. You're, 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 you're great. Your questions are terrific and I love your show. So I, it's a real privilege for me. Thanks, William. Really appreciate it. So really, that's all we have for you this week. Uh, we really want to thank William Green for coming on the show. He just provided us such a fantastic interview. His book is amazing. The name of his book is The Great Minds of Investing. You can go to Amazon.com and check out his book. Uh, I highly recommend it. The people that he has in there and the way that their profile is just really fantastic. And I think you'll really enjoy it. So uh, we really appreciate everything that everyone's doing out there for us. If you're leaving reviews on iTunes, thank you so much. You have no idea how much that means to us. We'll see you guys next week.
Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. Thank you.